0: you're listening to TIP.
1: On today's show, we're resharing some of the older episodes that are my favorites for a few reasons. One, we get a bunch of new listeners each week, so new listeners may not have heard this episode before. Two, even if you've been listening for a while, you may have missed this episode when it originally came out. Or three, even if you've heard it before, it could be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that. And you can pick up with our new episodes next week. That's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original
0: episode. I hope you guys enjoy it. On today's show, I sit down with entrepreneur and investor Chris Kawaja to learn about why and how he believes you should be investing your emergency fund using the ultimate liquidity portfolio strategy. Chris is a Stanford and Harvard graduate who worked at Goldman Sachs and Bridgewater Associates which some of you may recognize as this is super investor and one of my favorite investors, Ray Dalio's firm. Chris is also a successful entrepreneur, author, and real estate investor. Chris definitely has an impressive background in entrepreneurship, investing, and academia. You'll hear just how brilliant he is throughout the episode today, and I'm very excited to share our conversation on his unique investing strategy. Many people listening to the show know that you need an emergency fund, but most experts recommend you stick that money in a mattress or in a high-yield savings account and just leave it there for a rainy day. Chris's strategy is actually more aggressive with your emergency fund money because he recommends you go against what most experts say and actually invest your emergency funds in the markets. I'll let Chris explain this in more detail in today's episode, but it's a concept that fascinates me because I've generally been one that was willing to invest my emergency fund against the recommendations of other experts. So without further delay, let's get into this week's fascinating conversation with Chris Kawaja.
2: You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation.
0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Chris Kawaja. Welcome to the show, Chris.
2: Thanks, Robert. Appreciate you having me on.
0: Let's start the conversation today by talking a bit about your background and how you got to where you are today.
2: Okay. So I grew up in Toronto, Canada. I was the son of two immigrants, one of whom was a finance professor. And when I was 17, I was in my second last year of high school, but was on track to maybe graduate a year early. And in February of that year, I left minus something temperatures and snow on the ground in Canada, landed in California and visited Stanford, where it was 75 degrees and people were in bikinis, and my future was cemented from there. So I went to Stanford, I actually left high school a year early, I went to Stanford. After Stanford, I worked on Wall Street at Goldman Sachs for a couple of years. Then I worked at a startup well, it was a startup then. It's now a pretty big company called Align Technology. They make Invisalign. And then I went to business school at Harvard Business School. After that, I went back to Wall Street. I worked at a hedge fund called Bridgewater Associates with Ray Dalio. And after that, I joined a bunch of partners and started to work in a more of an entrepreneurial business where we're all co-owners. And now I spend my time split between my online business, which is Big Chill, my blogging and then my real estate and other investing. So that's where I got to where I am today. And obviously that's a condensed version. There are a lot of bumps and turns along the way, but that's what's got me here today where I live in Northern California, about 25 minutes north of the city, San Francisco.
0: Well I certainly don't blame you for wanting to make the move from Toronto to California for the weather. I'm a New Hampshire native so it's similar similarly cold here in the winter. So I definitely understand the desire to move to where it's warm.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, you know, it sucks some people in and I just never turn back.
0: <laughs> I think it'll eventually get me too. Given everything that's going on in the economy right now, I think our conversation today is going to be pretty timely. In times like this, we hear a lot of people recommending having an emergency fund, and I even recommend this myself pretty often. How can money in a high-yield savings account like an emergency fund actually lose money over time?
2: So this is the essential point and it's really in a way, what we're doing is we're tricking ourselves by thinking that these low bank interest rates, I think right now, you know high-yield savings are in 1.5 percent. The fact is, if you look over history, these don't keep up with inflation, usually even before taxes. And what's brutal about high-yield savings accounts is they're taxed at the highest rate. So if you add all of this together and even you know mock-up equivalents for what high-yield savings accounts should have looked like based on certain indices, you essentially come out at high-yield savings accounts, lose money. And that's a painful reality because people say, well, look, you know, I put $10,000 in and I ended up with $10,200 a year later. But if you went to go buy things and everything that costs $100 is now $103, you actually have lost money. Especially after you go and of that $200 you made, quotes made, you had to give some amount to the government, maybe that's 75 or even
0: $100. I feel like a lot of people don't often think about taxes when it comes to their high-yield savings accounts? I think it's talked about a lot in the investing community and in brokerage accounts, but not so much in the high-yield savings account space. Do you think, why might that be?
2: So I think part of it is that people assume it's such a default for people to say, look, put six months of money into a high-yield savings account, and that's your emergency fund. And I think that gospel probably was was appropriate A couple decades ago, before the advent of ETFs and commissions free trading and all these other things, because it probably was a not terrible way to sort of preserve your money. Okay. And I think what's happened is when there's just gospel, if everybody says, hey, you know, you always, everybody always wakes up in the morning and, you know, brushes their teeth, you know, I don't think people are questioning it a lot. And so for that bucket of money, there's been such gospel, such a belief in the right way to do it. And it's only recently that that belief really, could have been challenged because of ETFs, because of a lot of other reasons. And so I think people just haven't thought about it because it just wasn't something to think about. The best option was just throw it in a bank account that felt safe and move on. Now, there are different fallacies, like I talked about, that I think make high-yield savings even more psychologically attractive and less financially attractive. And that's mainly to do with the fact that people don't like the feeling of, quote, losing money. So they think that a bank account is zero risk. But to me, the risk of an investment is when it can't meet your goals. So for the case of an emergency fund, that's meeting your needs when an emergency arises. And for the case of a retirement fund, that's very simply, you know, will it provide for retirement? And so if you know the goal, then you very quickly learn that high yield savings are not the best avenue for preserving your emergency fund.
0: What are the three trends in finance that have radically altered the investing landscape so that savings accounts really just are no longer the best option for stashing cash.
2: So that's a great question. I think the number one trend is ETFs. So if you had to invest very simply our portfolio recommends, let's just say high level, 88% intermediate term bonds, 12% total stock market index. Now if you tried to do that, let's say 15 20 years ago, even if you found, you know, the cheapest mutual funds and the lowest minimums, just by definition, you're going to have to be into it for 10, 15, 20, $30,000. Now, the fact is most people's emergency funds aren't of that size, right? So the first trend is instead of mutual funds, you now have ETFs where you can get access to literally every company in the US stock market indices for pennies per year on a $1,000 investment. So your minimum investment might only have to be you know, $74 in a stock portion. So the first is the hurdle has gone down as you've gone from mutual funds to ETFs. The second, and this is pretty big, is commissions have been driven down and now in a lot of cases have gone away. Okay, so one thing that's nice about a bank account is there's not a commission making investment there. Now that there's no longer commission on ETFs, it, it has a lot of the same effect. There is a slight cost to an ETF. It's the difference between the bid-ask spread, but we're talking... Even tenths of pennies on a dollar when we're talking about what that cost is. So it's the move from mutual funds to ETFs, the drive down, and just this massive competition that's been created by, by the brokerage industry, you know, Fidelity, Vanguard, Robinhood, you name it, to bring commissions really low. And then I think just generally the access that investors have and the ease of use of online brokerages, it's so easy. To open an account now and to get this exposure that just didn't exist before. As far as one other trend that drives us away from high yield savings accounts, taxes just tend to go up. You know, tax rates now are a a lot higher than they probably were. You know, 200 years ago there weren't really taxes at all. You know, just very few taxes for funding funding the government. And so I think generally speaking, as society aims to provide more and more for people, and taxes go up, it that tax tends to be taken out. Unfortunately, on a on inflation adjusted items. And so the 2% inflation on such a low returning instrument as high yield savings, it just eats away your return over time.
0: You write about the ultimate liquidity portfolio and how it's the ultimate investment strategy in uncertain times. And I'd say that we're in pretty uncertain times right now. So I think this is going to be a good conversation to have. So, first, what is the ultimate liquidity portfolio strategy and what kind of track record does it have?
2: Great. So I love this portfolio because I think it's very appropriate for what an emergency fund is trying to do. Okay. What is it? It's very simple. And although you could do it, I would caution you not to do it because I think you really need to believe in what you're doing. And people, if they just hear something on a podcast and then implement it the next day, are probably not likely to stay with it. But the ultimate liquidity portfolio on the surface is just 88% intermediate term bonds. And there are a lot of ways to get access to that. Vanguard has ETFs and mutual funds that do that. And we refer to those, you can just read on my blog or refer to the book for what those are. And then 12%, the US total stock market index. Again, VTSAX is a very common one that people use, but there are a dime a dozen out there. Schwab has one, Vanguard has one, everybody has one, and they have these very low trading fees. So at a very high level, that's what it is. But as far as the construction of it, it's important that it's really two different assets. And in the book, we talk about rainy, and sunny as being, let's say you could create a perfect portfolio. Okay. You have certain chickens you're in your, or a portfolio for a farm. Let's say you're trying to gather the maximum number of eggs very consistently, right? You need a consistent return. What you'd ideally have is a chicken that lays an egg every day it's sunny and another chicken lays a, an egg every day it's not sunny. Then even though you don't know when it's going to be sunny and rainy, you know every single day you're going to get an egg. Now, obviously, the investment world is a little more complicated than that, and there's no such thing as these perfectly matched investments. But if you want to look historically, and we look back nine decades in our book, this mix of 88% intermediate term bonds, and it's a very specific kind of intermediate term bond, and VGIT is the ticker for the ETF if you just want to look up historical performance. This mix of 88% intermediate term bonds and 12% stocks just has a wonderful track record. And the reason is when times are bad, bonds tend to go up. And when times are good, stocks tend to go up. And so because of this ratio, and because they have these different characteristics where they're exposed really in some ways to different moves in the interest rate cycle, which ultimately is driving the economy, it's just a wonderful balance and it's extremely consistent. So that's what it is. And it's designed mostly to be simple. There are ways to actually get More return than doing 88, 12. You could add a third short term bond fund and change your percentages. But really, a lot of what we talk about is how do we create this behavior? So it's one thing to know it's 88 and 12%. It's another thing to know why you're sticking with it. It's another thing to understand how it performed in every single downturn and in every single upturn and really walk through that and understand it. Because ultimately, and this is something I believe very passionately the thing that hurts people in their investing. Is their behavior. So we all know you should buy low and sell high, and yet everybody buys high and sells low. Look, maybe it's only 98% of people, but it's pretty close to everybody. And there are very good reasons why that's true. But this is ultimately an emotional defense against that. And it's there to provide consistency and this ongoing income that really is comparable after tax over most periods to a high yield savings account, but then has this growth element because stocks do tend to grow over time.
0: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
1: Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com. mi That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com M-I for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com M-I Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com.
0: When I hear about the portfolio consisting of that many or that high of a percentage of bonds, it makes me wonder if that strategy fits towards younger demographics like millennials. You know, I don't tend to recommend bonds here on the show and you don't hear a lot of people talk about that specifically for this type of demographic. So, do you think that that strategy is good for millennials with with that many bonds?
2: Absolutely is, and let me explain what I mean by it being a good strategy. I think we have to think of our money in three different buckets, okay? And one of the biggest mistakes I see, and I've seen this a lot actually in millennials for whatever reason, is just the education that I received in ter- on Wall Street on in terms of how to bucket money seems to have not permeated to this generation. So it's something I talk a lot about when I speak with younger people. And that's that you have to think of money as doing a job. And so let's just divide that into three basic jobs, just to keep it really simple. The first job is retirement. Okay. Retirement is a job where long-term, at some distant point in the future, you're going to need some amount of money that funds you with some income for a long time. For that, and that's ultimately over time where you'll build, where most of your portfolio will go. For that job, stocks are great. Now, I wouldn't recommend 100% stocks for that retirement portfolio, for the main reason being stocks don't always go up. And people say, well, you know, eventually they will go up after five years, after 10 years. To which my answer is, If you'd bought stocks in 1987 or 1989 in Japan, you'd still be underwater. So, for anyone who had an investment horizon that was 33 years or less, that was a really bad idea. So, I don't believe in 100% stocks, but I believe that stocks are very appropriate for that long-term portfolio because over time, stocks tend to perform about six to seven points above inflation, whereas this portfolio tends to perform about three points above inflation versus short-term securities and high-yield savings, which tends to be at inflation. So those are the three categories. Now, the other category, which is really easy, is your bank account, your checking account, just to pay your bills, right? What's the job of that? To pay your monthly bills. Real easy. Okay. There's this middle bucket, and it's extremely important. And the reason it's extremely important is, and you have to think about it differently, what is the job of this bucket? The job of this bucket is to preserve the value of what you put in there after taxes. And you want it to do that at the highest possible frequency. And so, This portfolio was designed, and the results show that over a three-year period, if this is your emergency fund, you have a much greater chance of losing money in stocks than you do in this. It's just extremely consistent. So is my advice, go invest in stocks? Sure, for the retirement part of your portfolio. But the very first thing you should be doing in your investing strategy, obviously, after having enough money to pay your bills, the second thing I'd say is probably paying off high-interest debt. But the first money you invest should be in an emergency fund before you've actually invested in your retirement portfolio. And so I'd say, yes, absolutely. All millennials should have this, and they should have it for their emergency fund. Once you have enough of an emergency fund, great. Please pour all your money into your retirement. And that's going to be the vast majority stocks. I have some ideas on how it shouldn't be 100% stocks that we discussed. But yes, absolutely, it's appropriate. Because look, you're, you're having it to maximize your chance of preserving value of money. It's not like a retirement fund, which is maximizing the long-term growth. And for that, go ahead with volatile investments. Those are great. And in fact, you know, when times are bad, it's great for you because you're buying more shares every time you invest. So I think the question is yes, it's very appropriate for that bucket of money. What's the biggest mistake millennials make? Not putting money in different buckets. They slosh everything together and then you get confused and you know, you don't know what portion is which. And you say, Well, should I have bonds? And you know, I think if you know the job. You know how you should invest. And yes, you need an emergency fund. And the job of that is to preserve capital. This is the best way I know how to do it.
0: You talked about it being important to understand the historical returns of a strategy before investing in it. So when we talk about the ultimate liquidity portfolio, how is it performing right now? And then how did it perform over the last decade when we had such a strong bull market? I would assume that over the last decade, through the strong bull market, that a portfolio with 88% bonds probably got crushed by the broad stock market index how has it performed
2: so over a 90 year period and i know that feels super long and the reason i look at 90 years is because there are markets of all stripes okay over a 90 year period it's a little less than 3% over inflation over the last let's say 40 years it's a little more than 3% over inflation. And it's pretty consistent. How has it performed in the last decade? Well, the last decade has actually been pretty good for stocks and bonds. So it's performed pretty much in line with that. I don't have my exact annual performance notes in front of me, but you can just look back on Portfolio Visualizer and pick any period that you're interested in and see it's very consistent. I think more important than that is look at how it's performed in times of crisis, okay? Because the first thing is this is designed to preserve your money. How is it done this year? It's up this year. I don't know what it is as of today, but certainly a few percentage points. It's about an average year to a slightly better than average year just because bonds have done super well. So that's the first thing. The second thing is it does well when you're reading bad headlines. Why is that important? Because although people say, hey, I want to invest in stocks, the biggest fallacy is that people look at an index fund and assume that that's what the performance that they're going to get. But study after study after study, and you can just look this up online and you'll get hundreds of hits show that the average investor in the stock market, and everyone thinks they're better than average, but the average investor in the stock market underperforms the stock market by between two and five points. So we talked about the stock market being, let's say, six to seven points above inflation. We talked about this as being three points above inflation. If you subtract two to five points, you know, really, the average investor is getting not the returns of stocks, but the returns of corporate bonds with all of the volatility that comes along with it. And I think your show does a really good job at educating people on how they can avoid that. But I can tell you that some of the very smartest people I know, I'm talking guys, millionaires, guys who had plans on what they were gonna do in the next downturn, these guys sold when the market crashed. They were selling in March when things were cheaper than we've ever seen them. So I recognize that people believe they're gonna behave a certain way, but in practice they don't. And I think part of it is emotional and part of it is just structural. Look, when you lose your job, you tend to cut your investing amounts. Right so there are just some structural reasons why it's hard to get those kinds of results that you see about when you just look at an index fund.
0: How much of this strategy do you think has been shaped by your time that you spent with Ray Dalio at his firm Bridgewater Associates?
2: I would say a lot of the strategy is informed by it. It's probably in some ways a very deep simplification of many of his principles. The one thing Ray, and I don't think he would say this if you interviewed him, but if you look behind what he's doing, probably his, his advice would sound something like, everybody's a little bit too in love with stocks, and everybody's a little too overexposed to stocks. And we feel that when we enter a downturn. And so Ray always said his goal and his dream was to find, I think he said, 20 to 40 uncorrelated investments. And the thing about stocks is stocks are highly correlated. You know, stocks markets tend to go up in sync, and they tend to go down in sync. There's a little bit of difference between this and that, but in a bad year for the stock market, it tends to be bad for most stocks for a bunch of reasons. And so people are a little bit too in love with stocks. And I, what Ray, I think, taught me, I'd say a couple things. The first is this value of, of seeking things that don't correlate with each other. And for me, a little bit of that is expressed in the ultimate liquidity portfolio, but a lot of it is expressed in just how I invest everywhere. You know, My real estate investments are highly uncorrelated with each other. I invest in different regions. I invest with different industries. Likewise, in my personal investing, I have oil royalties. I have legal settlements that I'm invested in. I mean, you name it, I'm probably invested in it. If it has a high after inflation return and is uncorrelated, I'm interested. And, you know, there are a couple disadvantages to being in those quotes disadvantages that I happen to think are advantages. And that's people say, well, it's not liquid. Well, I would tell you that liquidity is the reason for bad behavior in the stock market. When it costs you 6% to sell your real estate investment, chances are you're going to hang in there. So the first thing is uncorrelated investments. And I really have pursued that with vigor ever since I worked with Ray. I think it's a great insight that he has on that. The second is this fallacy of nominal return. And there are several fallacies in investing. And one of the ones I really harp on is that everybody values gains less than they feel pain there are, in fact, charts that shows there's an estimate that says you know losing a dollar or losing five dollars is two and a half times as painful as gaining five dollars for people. So this is totally illogical, but it's also the reason high yield savings accounts exist because it's like people walk into a casino and there are a bunch of games and somebody says, "Well, in this game, no matter what, you're not going to lose money." And what they don't tell you is that you walk out and when you walk out of the casino, yeah, your hundred bucks became one hundred and two bucks and. A bouncer hit you up for a buck on the way, and when you came outside, everything was 103 bucks. It was 100 bucks before, but it feels really good not to lose money. So I think this just really hammering in. What matters is what you can buy with the money. If the idea of an emergency fund is, let's say, a fridge breaks and I need to go buy a fridge, and a fridge goes from 500 bucks to 525 bucks in a time when your your emergency fund didn't grow, you've lost money. So there's this idea you have to keep feeding the monster. So I think the fact that nominal returns, everybody weighs nominal pre-tax returns against each other, and they're really scared of nominal losses, but you really have to look at the after-tax, real return on money. And so wherever possible, and the data is hard to find, and you'll see in my book that I'm constantly caveating saying, look, in this case, I had to use nominal. Real was complicated or, you know, it got distorted, but it's really important to understand what the real return is. And that, because that's all that matters. It doesn't matter that you had the same number of dollars In your account, what matters is, were you able to do the job that that was required to do, which is cover you in an emergency? So those are the two things I learned from him, the two biggest things. Also, honestly, just break everything down to its base base concepts. And then don't be afraid to face the pain of what you've done wrong, because that's where you grow. Pain is really where the growth is. And I think he believes that to a very extreme extent. And it can be hard to swallow, but it accelerated my learning once I accepted that I had to be wrong a lot of the time. learn from those mistakes.
0: With this ultimate liquidity portfolio, what do you see as some of the major risks of this strategy that investors should be aware of?
2: So the biggest risk with anything that gets back tested and has all this theoretical support is that maybe the world has changed in some fundamental way that just structurally changes things. And one, one characteristic that's just an element of the portfolio is obviously the performance tends to get driven by bonds. and so we talked about a 90 year period. and really, in the first 40 years, interest rates were going up and bonds didn't do very well, and that's why you have that slightly lower performance, more of a two, two percent-ish return versus you know, or let's call it two percent plus or minus versus three and a quarter percent plus or minus, since bonds have been having decreasing interest rates. So I think what the risk is right now is bonds are at really extremely low interest rates right now. And there are a lot of reasons for that we can go into. And the portfolio has never been tested when the seven-year bond yield is 0.5%. Most likely what I think it does, and by the way, low yields help stocks in a number of ways. One is it makes them more competitive when you're looking at dividends, but the other is it tends to drive the borrowing costs of companies down. So there are some advantages to having these low rates that will transfer to the other part of your portfolio. But what I believe may happen in the future is that future returns may not be beating inflation by this same three plus percent. Do I still think it's a great preserver of value? Absolutely. I think that the growth element, the return on the bonds may create a bit of an issue. So what's the biggest risk? It's the same risk it is with any historical look at things. And you know, just like people look at US stocks and say stocks have always gone up you know the world can change and i'm mindful of that change and you know once once i really feel like there's something that challenges the basic notions maybe i'll post something else but it's worked pretty well for 90 years so i'm not rushing to change it but if i had to say one thing and i'm not super worried about it that would be the one thing i have my eye on is does this possibly a negative interest rate environment somehow impact things in a way that the past 90 years just can't capture
1: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day And stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. Netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right. Back to the show.
0: How do you see this portfolio performing over the next, say, decade if we see a reversion to higher interest rates? I mean, right now we're in, like you've said, a historically low interest rate environment and they could go further. They could go potentially negative like you're seeing in other parts of the world, but What if that doesn't happen? And what if we start to, the interest rates start to climb back up? How do you see that impacting a portfolio like this with such a high exposure to bonds? So, two things.
2: The first is just a comment on history. And anybody who's investing, I recommend they become a student of history and of financial history. And I go through some examples in my book, but really it's important to become a student of history. One thing you'll notice is that nobody has ever really escaped. (laughs) because this is a recent phenomenon, it really, we, we have about 33 years of experience. Japan has never escaped low interest rates. We certainly, the US, have not managed to escape low interest rates. So one of the things I'd say is people assume that just because interest rates have historically been, you know, three, five, 6%, that they'll go back there. What I would tell you is that the evidence is there's somewhat of an anchor, and it seems really, really hard to get interest rates back up. Okay, I'm not saying they won't go up a little bit, but if you look, the Fed's attempt to raise rates, I think it was December 2018, if I'm getting my, my dates correct, they raised rates about 25 or 50 basis points, and they had to come right back down and cut it again. So I think it's just really hard in practice to raise interest rates. So that's the first thing. So look, the yield curve is telling you that interest rates are not going up in the next 10 years. Now, it could be that it's wrong. If they do go up, remember, two things happen. Yes, the value of your bonds goes down. That absolutely does happen. But a second thing happens. If we were to issue bonds at 10% today, you would be getting a 10% coupon, which would go towards your return. So an offsetting fact, and this is why bonds add so much stability to the portfolio, an offsetting feature is that you'd be collecting bigger coupons. So if interest rates went to 4 or 5%, you'd be getting a 4 to 5% interest rate on that part of your portfolio. So again, it's not a huge consolation, but bonds, you know they're not going to crash 50%. That's just a very hard thing for bonds to do. They've never done that bonds tend to have corrections. Stocks tend to have crashes. So yeah. So look, if I had to forecast it, my best guess is we're going to be more in the inflation plus a couple percent range, not inflation plus three or four. But really, you never know. The key here is, will it preserve value better than a portfolio of all stocks? Will it preserve value even than a portfolio of all bonds? Will it preserve value better than a high-yield savings account? I'm pretty confident that it will do that whether that's for any given one-month period, three-month period, one-year period, or three-year period.
0: Are there ways to further optimize this portfolio to increase returns? If so, what are they? And what are some of the reasons that someone might not want to do that?
2: Beautiful question. I'm guessing you may have read my book because I talk about this a lot. And if not, you maybe have taken my video course. The challenge here is that our biggest Enemy in investing, and I know you've had lots of people talk about this, our biggest enemy is our desire to do something, right? Our desire to really churn things, make things more complicated, et cetera. So the answer is yes, there are many ways to improve the performance of this portfolio. But the vast majority of the benefit, and what I'd recommend to the vast majority of people, is just keep it simple. And simple really just looks like 88% intermediate bonds, 12% total stock market index invested in the Vanguard securities, rebalance once a year there are a couple ways to improve the portfolio. The one that I think is most interesting and most applicable, because this, just doesn't, this doesn't just apply to this, is to harvest tax losses. The easiest thing to do is when you rebalance. So let's say you started your emergency fund on July 1st, 2020. What I say in the book is you should set a date for, let's call it June 25th of 2021, a little less than a year ahead of time. Why do you do that? Because if a portion of your portfolio went down. Then you sell those shares, you actually capture a tax loss. And you can capture that as an ordinary loss against your ordinary income versus as a long-term loss, which is going to be at a, at a lower rate. So you want losses at a high rate and gains at a low rate. Essentially, what you can do is capture your gains at a lower rate and have your gains taxed at a lower rate and have your losses taxed or the tax benefit at a higher rate. So one is what I would call this tax arbitrage. And what's cool about it, because we're using ETFs, is you can do it through, through essentially trading like securities and not reduce your exposure at all. So you can sell on day 360 and buy something very similar on day 360. And then 30 days later, you can switch back without avoiding these wash sales. I don't know if you're familiar with the wash sale rule, but it's if you take a loss and then buy the security back within 30 days, you're not eligible for recording that loss on your taxes. This is a really cool way because it's ETFs. You can just buy a very similar ETF when you sell things and you don't have a wash sale rule, which is a really big tax saving. So what do those tax things do? Look, it depends on the year. The good news is in really terrible years, that tax advantage is much bigger. So when people are inclined to do something, namely sell, the one thing they can do I say, hey, don't go out and sell things. Just rebalance and take advantage of tax losses. So those are a couple of easy ways. There are other tweaks you can do that get into the more esoteric and complicated dynamic. I mean, one thing is there are three ETF portfolios that perform slightly better. Again, rebalancing between three ETFs, managing three ETFs, that's its own complexity. And I ask people, you know, don't you just want this on automatic pilot? The other thing, and this is a very subtle thing, when you add that third item, that third ETF, you become more correlated with the stock market. So that means that your portfolio is going down more often when the headlines are bad. And a big part of this portfolio again I mentioned it is getting the right behaviors. To get the right behaviors you want things that are really kind of neutral when you're reading the bad stock market headlines and possibly even good because it just has this emotional benefit to keep you calm, which is really important because often you're tapping into your emergency fund when you're most nervous because you just lost your job. So this emotional stability, this emotional side of it I think is really important. So Yes, you can tweak it. Yes, I talk about how to tweak it in the book, but no, I don't really think it applies. I can tell you that I'm a pretty sophisticated investor. I just keep it at 8812. Real simple. Annual rebalancing, no problem. Super simple.
0: Earlier we talked about the different jobs that money have. How much are Americans losing each year by not investing emergency funds properly?
2: So I looked at this once and I don't have the number at my fingertips, but the amount of money Americans have in savings accounts is on the order of several hundred billion. So that's a huge number. And I actually happen to think it's quite a bit bigger than that, because I think people have you know, mattress cash or money in checking accounts. But let's assume for the sake of argument, it's $300 billion. And this allows you to earn, let's just say on an after-tax basis, let's just even conservatively say 1.67% just that calculation alone says there's $5 billion a year being left on the table by having your money in high-yield savings. Now, I'd argue it happens to be a lot more than that because of a bunch of other features of high-yield savings accounts, and there's money spent advertising high-yield savings accounts. I mean, there are a bunch of other things that are happening. But broadly speaking, it is in the billions of dollars. And that's why I told you before we started recording, I didn't write this book to make money. I mean, I get income from a bunch of other places. And it was really just about this message was so important to share that, look, times have changed. Don't listen to this generic advice. Think for yourself. Get an emergency fund going. And you know I just think it can be a really, really useful aspect of someone's portfolio.
0: Why do you think many millennials haven't followed that advice over the last 10 years or so? And do you think that's going to change going forward?
2: So why haven't millennials done this is because we've been in a great stock market period and people do what they always do which is they buy more stocks when stocks go up and that's why we end up buying high and selling low because it's very hard to be at a party and hear about your friend who's made a ton of money in the stock market and not want to do the same thing and so i think that's one reason is just it's been so compelling to be in the stock market it's been this exciting time and millennials a lot of them haven't experienced in their investing career a crash okay it takes people often to have gone through a crash understand the need or to have had an emergency to understand the need for an emergency plan. So I think that's the biggest reason is really this performance chasing, which is just a trait of everybody. It's not just millennials, it's everybody. And also just experience the people who tend to have emergency funds or people who've been through emergencies and understand the need for it. So hopefully rather than learning from it directly, you can learn by watching a friend lose a job or, or learn from just reading my book or some other book. But I think that, People will certainly, after this kind of crash, just like they do in every crash, take much more into account, first of all, how exposed they are to stocks. And second of all, what they're going to do in an emergency. And really, what I do in my book is I walk people through the steps of figuring out how much that fund should be. And the good news is, for a lot of millennials, it doesn't have to be six months of expenses. And we walk through that. But really, the answer is it's dependent on your situation. And, you know, particularly for the younger branch of the millennials, they don't have the kinds of employment and expense situations that require such a, such a huge amount of money. So it's very attainable. And I think it's just most important to have some kind of backup and understand look, things aren't always going to go well just because they've gone well since 2008, 2009. You know, 11 years is a huge bull market, but yeah, we're in a new, we're in a new world. We're going to face bear markets again. And the good news is, you actually want bear markets for your retirement portfolio because presumably if people are doing the right thing they're investing a little bit at a time and you just bought something on sale so there is good news and a silver lining to this to this market crash and that's that millennials are not near retirement for the most part if they are then you know they worked to some startup made a big amount of money and they don't really care but millennials tend not to be close to retirement and so having a dip in the performance of stocks is actually a really good thing it doesn't feel like it when you're going through it but it is good news
0: all of the information that we learn from great guests such as yourself here on the show is always super helpful. And I think it's really important to learn. But I think the other component that's really important is actually putting what we learn in these episodes into action. And that's what I always recommend for people listening to the show today is to take something that we learned throughout the episode and go put it into action. So Chris, what would be that one thing that after listening to this episode today that a millennial should go out and do to get themselves closer towards retirement, financial freedom, or just optimizing their portfolio?
2: So I'm going to say something that probably isn't what you expect. Of course, you're going to think that I'm going to say, hey, go, go put your money in an emergency fund. But I think the most important thing when you're newer to investing, and by definition, if you're a millennial, you have much more of your investment life ahead of you than behind you. I think the most important thing is to journal about what your experience was, particularly the emotional side and what your instincts were during this last crash you just experienced one of the best lessons, one of the best learning periods you're going to have. They're not going to come along that often. But if you're realistic and you journal about, hey, what happened? How did I feel? Did I want to sell in March? It'll tell you so much about the kind of investor you are. Because a lot of investing, it really has to be personal to you. How much are you willing to tolerate risk? And I can tell you, this just taught a bunch of people that they were a little more risk averse than they thought. And that's fine. You can invest appropriately for that. But the biggest thing is really try to learn from this learning experience, both in terms of what happened in the stock market and also we're coming out of shelter in place now. But shelter in place really deleted a lot of distractions. And so it's given us a special opportunity to learn from our past. And so I would just say, learn from the past. And then more importantly, put in place systems, whatever those are for you, not just to learn about investing. And this is life advice. The most important thing you can do is figure out how to be a great learner And so whatever it is for you to do that, which typically has to involve self-awareness and a willingness to be wrong, and then reflection, if you can get that and you can get people around you to help you reflect and help you sharpen the tools, you have so much of your investing life ahead of you. This is all about how do I get better? Yes, you maybe took a hit in March. Yes, you don't like looking at your retirement portfolio. That is not gonna matter. This is about you getting smarter, getting better, improving, it's why you're listening to this podcast. By definition, if you're listening to this, you're already on the right train. I'm just saying, keep riding that train, keep learning, be reflective, and then have systems in your life, not just for learning about investing, but learning about everything, learning about how to be better at your job. Even in my case, how do I be a better dad? Or if you have that ability, nothing's gonna stop you.
0: I always love learning about new strategies and just different ways to invest. So, thank you for doing a deep dive into the ultimate liquidity portfolio with me and for those listening to the show today. For those that want to connect with you further after the episode, where can they go to find you?
2: So there are several different ways, but I'm best known for my Friday newsletters. Those are 90-second reads that really summarize the best ideas I've heard that week. There's always one post about finance, and then I have four other categories. There's a random category. I have a quote. I have something on fitness, mindfulness, et cetera. So it's all the areas that I'm interested in. The entire time it takes to read is 60 to 90 seconds. So I have a very high retention rate because it doesn't bore people. And I try to make it really insightful. And it relates to posts on my blog and things like that. So that's number one is go to Upwarding.com, U-P-W-A-R-D-I-N-G.com and sign up for my newsletter. People can send me an email through Upwarding.com. I try to respond to all the messages and I do read 100% of them. So it's an easy way to get a hold of me.
0: Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it.
2: Appreciate it. Thanks for everything you're doing for the community. Great stuff.
0: All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week.